Hello, this is The Game Podcast from The Times and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Gregor Robertson is with us and we are joined today by Henry Winter. Henry, great to have you with us. Um, Before we start this podcast, I've just got to ask you if you had any comeback from that unpopular football opinion of yours where you sort of expressed your disappointment with Wembley Stadium. Did anyone come back at you? Well, not really. No, I mean, oh. I've been I, I've been saying this for years. I'm not a I'm not a fan. We don't, you know, as we discussed on the last time, we, we don't need a national stadium. We've got so many amazing stadiums, and um, you know, look, it's fun for for, for tourists, um, but you know, the money needs to be invested in uh, grassroots and 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 in the pyramid rather than in bricks and mortar. But anyway, look, that's an argument. I've lost. It's 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 there, and you know, it's a nice car park with a pitch next to it. <laughs> Nicely put. Uh, are you keeping well otherwise, though, Henry? All good? Yeah, yeah. Back in marathon training. I took a couple of weeks out when it was cancelled. So uh, I'm doing it for Michael Carrick's foundation. So oh, uh, now that we can run longer than an hour, it's great. So, yeah, so doing two, two and a half hours a day just till Ooh. getting out there. So it's good, and good, good, good. Are you actually covering a marathon? How, I mean, not a marathon as such, but how far are you covering in that time? Uh, about 17, 18 miles, <gasps> but it's quite flat where we live, which is okay. Although slightly humiliatingly, coming back into the, the village, there's one of those speed cameras and um, <laughs> it's, you, you know, it gives you the sort of smiley face if you're below <laughs> 30. When I go through, it's like a sort of tidal wave of sort of happy face emojis because I'm going so slowly. <laughs> Glad to see you're, you're, you know, keeping everything all above board, though, Henry. Gregor, how are you? How are you doing? I'm good, yes. Um, no marathon training, still 5k for me, that's about um, 2103 I was today, so I'm getting I'm Ooh, down a bit. You yeah. are, you're getting closer. So what's the aim, to be sub-21? That's the next aim, and then sub-20, I think... Um, I'll be doing very well if I get to that. Oh, Gregor, you both of you are putting me to shame. Um, I think <laughs> the extent of my running will be from, from I don't know, the living room to the kitchen to get a drink from the fridge. But anyhow, <laughs> that's by the by. Um, coming up, we're going to be discussing Craig Bellamy being the latest former footballer to speak out on Mental Health Awareness Week. And we're heading back down memory lane to one of England's greatest ever performances. All that to come after this. Now, it's all eyes on Watford this week in the latest in football's battle to return in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. It all started this week when their captain, Troy Deeney, opted to stay away from training because of safety fears linked to his young son with respiratory problems. Defender Adrian Mariapa and two members of staff have now tested positive for coronavirus, with the Times understanding that as many as five of the squad have followed Deeney in electing to stay away from training. The players are now expected to wait until they see the results on Saturday of the the second round of testing before deciding on whether to return. The thing is, some have returned to training at Watford and some haven't. So when it appears that this isn't a collective decision, is it okay to stay away, Henry? Yes, of course it is. I mean, it's, you know, it's like Angola Kante at at Chelsea. If these players have got uh, private personal reasons for for wanting to stay away, for not having health risk, we know about the health issues in Angola Kante with him and with his with his family, Troy Dean, as you say, he's got a five month old baby with respiratory problems. I think they've got every right. But also football collectively has, has also got a right and a commitment to staff, a commitment to broadcasters um, to actually get the season underway. If that is going to be with slightly depleted squads, then, you know, obviously we'll miss Dini and Kante, but, you know, that the game has to keep going. Gregor, as a former player, you'd be understanding of players not wanting to come in, I, I expect? 
Yeah, I don't think there can be there's any alternative. You know, we're not seriously suggesting that players either be forced in or, yeah, you know, if they have, if they have issues or they have fears and concerns, then it's that's that's completely understandable. This is a kind of once in a hundred year event, um, and I, I just don't think I don't think you, I don't think there's any alternative to to leaving the choice in in players' hands. I think I think if it comes to the point where um, we're we're looking in towards next season, and or or during the season, even in fact when the season restarts, and it's and there's potentially a few players still still uh, uncertain and, and showing concerns, and it's and we're learning more and more about this all the time, and the kind of weight of evidence says it's safe. Then perhaps there's a, a different conversation to be had. But at the moment, this is still a very new new event, um, and fears are understandable. Mm. Well, the Watford manager, Nigel Pearson, has said he has no issue with Deeney staying away, insisting every player or member of staff that it affects in different ways. We have to respect people's views. Adrian Mariapa has also expressed his surprise at testing positive as he displayed no symptoms and barely left the house during lockdown. We know all the precautions that are taking place at, at football training grounds up and down the land. There is testing going on on a regular basis. If and when the Premier League does get back up and running, Henry. Do we expect the decision to play to also be left in the hands of, of the players? Absolutely. I mean, you can't, as Gregor was saying, you can't force uh, this handful so far of players to uh, to train, to play. They have those issues. Those issues aren't necessarily going to change in the next five to six weeks. So absolutely, I think we'll see weakened teams at uh, at Watford. Um, in particular, and of course, that's very frustrating for, for for the manager and for the Watford fans because it could cost them their Premier League status. So, look, that is a, almost an internal issue uh, at Watford. But if you talk to people and players and officials at other clubs, you know they're reporting in numbers. Hmm. Thing is, though, Gregor, there will be others outside of football that won't have much sympathy for players that say they don't want to return to training. Troy Deeney obviously has been very outspoken on it and he has his, has given his reasons partly because or partly that he's not been able to get the answers to the questions that he's asked. But like I say, there are many people in different industries who have had to go back to work. So in some ways, they're not necessarily going to get that sympathy that they might expect. No, but I think um, someone like Troy Deeney certainly won't be looking for any sympathy. Uh, that's not his style. I think... You know, there's financial imperatives at play as well. There's some people who have to go back to work because they need the money, and and I think if you if you were to work your way down into lower leagues and they were considering coming back, then you would have it would have been the same. It's more like you know, kind of closer to average earnings. So he he said, I think he said it fairly bluntly. He's been broke before. He doesn't. This is not about money. It's about the health of his health of his son and his family. Um, so. As I said, I think it's only been two months. You know, it's been two months since football's shut down. This is all very new. I think we need to show a bit of empathy. And as I say, mm-hmm. if we get into, if we if it if it goes on much much longer, you know, if we're looking at possibly a year without fans inside stadiums, um, and we're finding out ways we have to live with this this virus, and it's going to change the way we live. Uh, there will be conversations, perhaps, if there's players still with concerns about returning to play. There will be conversations to be had further down the line, but I don't think they're conversations we need to have just now. I'm playing devil's advocate here because I, I do actually believe that Troy Deeney and anyone who doesn't want to return yet 
has every right to do that, especially if you, you're not getting the answers that you want from the questions that you're asking. Um, but I know that we I've spoken this week to Andros Townsend, who has mentioned if he felt that any of his family members were vulnerable and were at risk, he would move into a hotel. He would, he would do whatever was necessary to ensure that he does still get back to playing football. Is that something that you expect could happen, Henry, that some footballers will have to make huge sacrifices like that? To be honest, I'm surprised that the uh, th- this hasn't been more of a discussion, particularly when you look at how the Bundesliga are doing it. Obviously, they are now going into the match phase uh, and they are effectively isolating in a hotel for a week before um, be- before games. I- I'm slightly surprised that uh, at some point the, uh, the you know the players don't if they are if there is a concern then they move into a hotel whether you do that individually or collectively. But I think that will eventually come on come be, be a major discussion point as we move towards the uh, the restart. I can't see it being June the 12th, but if it's June the 19th or the 26th, then uh, th- then maybe the hotel option will arise then. Clubs will have to make those decisions as we get closer to, to the resumption of football. But let's focus a bit more on Watford, Gregor. What do you think the Premier League will have to do if Watford find themselves in a position where a large number of their players don't wish to return to training, let alone play? I mean, this that is a really tough question, and it's a bit of an unknown. I think, you know, you could draw some parallels with if, with if the season does restart and say four or five players contract the virus and are ruled out. You know, this is just completely new territory, and there, there will have to. I think there will have to be some kind of protocols for that eventuality. But it, it just is a little bit different if it's a kind of if it's a decision that someone's taking consciously. Um, rather than being ruled out because it's been treated almost as, as an injury. But these are two questions that there is no answer to at the moment. Um, mm. I think my my gut feeling would be that if it's players are simply saying we don't want to come back when they do, you know, there is the the option of perhaps going into a hotel and it's their decision. Uh, I don't think there's going to be much to be done about that. I don't think, the, you know, I don't think it's going to halt the season's restarting or anything. Uh, the the as I say, if if uh, several players contract coronavirus at one time, then that has to raise questions about the kind of integrity of the <laughs> completing the rest of the season. Because you know, as many man many clubs and and CEOs and managers have said, if they were to lose two or three of their best players and they're in a relegation battle, it's not the same as an injury. It's not the same. Uh, mm. It would be bad luck, but it's just it's not the same. This is a kind of because as I said, once in a hundred year event. So um, I think they do need to think about that. Just to pick up on what we were just discussing beforehand with regards to hotels, how would would you feel about that, Gregor, if you were being told that actually you might have to move out of home for a little while? Yeah, I mean, there uh, there are people, you know, there are people who have uh, children. I I don't have children yet, but and I think I could imagine it'd be very difficult for them. I've spoken to players who have said that they'd be willing to do it. Um, because you know we there's been a huge debate around footballers returning and sort of often quite empty comparisons to people have made and, and other kind of you know frontline workers who've made big sacrifices in the last in the, in recent weeks. Um, and one of those is is living away from from family. So I don't you know I think that would be something that you could you could expect players to do reasonably. I would have felt like that myself too. So. You know, and there may be ways of saying if it was a, a two week, 
two weeks in a hotel and then afterwards you you could see your family and then you would be retested again before you went you know I'm sure there'd be ways ways around that so I think if that if it comes to it then players will be willing to do that and Henry do you know if there have been any discussions about squads being depleted and what could happen as a result of that I'm sure it's been discussed internally at at clubs because um, obviously they then got the the internal discussion of, of should players be paid. So absolutely, and as we all know, everything in football tends to come back to money. So I'm sure that has been uh, uh, moved. I mean, I talked to um, Christian Perser at Aston Villa a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about that. You know, what would we do if we didn't have um, Tyro Mings and Jack Grealish? You know, God forbid that uh, you know it would happen to to, to them. Um, that <laughs> they would be staring down the barrel of relegation. What I would find fascinating, and I'd love to know this from Gregor, would there be any tension between the players if you have got, say, 23 of the 25 reporting to duty, accepting the risks, and everyone understands there is still an element of risk despite all the protocols that are around. Would there then be any tension with those uh, small number who stayed away? I would think so, personally, because... As I said, you know, this is such a, a unique and unprecedented event. Um, and I, I think it would also probably depend upon the, the circumstances. You know, someone like N'Golo Kante, I think he's hugely respected and well-liked. And, and mm. I th- you think he had a, a, an issue with his with his heart last yeah. year, or 2018 perhaps. Um, Troy Deeney has raised the, the, the issue about his, his child. You know, I think it probably would depend on circumstances. But overwhelmingly I'm sure that players would be supported Hmm. and just to pick up on something you just mentioned there Henry about pay should players still be paid in full if they don't return Uh, morally probably not Uh, I think legally they probably will be because I think they'll be able to point out that you know look at the circumstances you know I'm sure a lawyer could advise a player that the club are effectively um, asking him to take risk and risk the health of his family, however minimal or substantial those risks are, I'm, I'm sure a lawyer would uh, would probably quite enjoy that opportunity. So uh, it's it's going to be an interesting one. I think. I mean, having sort of you know, Gregor clarified sort of what the players' reaction would be, what the reaction of fans would be um, if Watford are, are looking at relegation and their best player is is watching from afar. I mean, look, I completely respect Troy Deeney. He's, he's a fascinating individual. He would have thought long and hard about this. He is a, he's pretty much a man of principle in, in, in many ways. Um, but I still think it will call, it must cause one or two problems internally at Watford, whether with the supporters, whether with the executives, whether with one or two mm. players, particularly if their footballing livelihood, their financial livelihood to an extent, is going to be decided by what happens on the pitch without their best player. Yeah, no, I imagine you're right. You, you, you know, if someone who is as outspoken as, as Dini has been on this situation, it, you know, he unintentionally may sway people's decisions. So you can only imagine that it may cause a little bit of an issue. Uh, just lastly, on the subject of pay, Gregor, how would you feel? Would you expect to be paid if you didn't return to, to play for your team? <laughs> it's another very difficult question. But <laughs> like I say, I think at the moment they should be paid. Um, I think if the season is completed and, these, and we say look, we've, we've, we've overcome that hurdle, the clubs haven't lost out too much financially or, or as much as was feared. Um, and then you look towards the next season, what the what the conditions are going to be like then. 
then there's a discussion to be had. You know, you, I don't think it could go on much longer. I don't think you could, as Henry says, morally sort of accept being paid indefinitely without doing your job. But at mm-hmm. the moment, this is very, very early in this in this uh, in this pandemic, and it, you know, there are, there are fears, and there's there's a lot that, as as Troy Dini said, there's there's questions that are unanswered. We can't answer them. There's no answer to these questions just now. So there might be in a couple of months' time. Um, and I just think that just now we need to show a bit of uh, empathy and compassion with these guys. Yeah, there's still lots unknown. That's right. And, and Dini has also discussed the risks to BAME players, coupled with the fact that Pronetics, the Hong Kong-based firm carrying out the Premier League tests, claims that the results are 98.8% accurate. So that means for every 800 tests, around 10 would actually return false results. Mariapa, as we mentioned before, was one of the 748 players and staff in the Premier League tested over the weekend. And he is bemused as to how he has tested positive. But when we talk about BAME players, Henry, should they be given more protection? Well, it's such a huge concern. And this is something that Troy Deeney has articulated, the PFA looking into. Um, one or two other black players also have, have mentioned it publicly and privately. I mean, it all stemmed partly from the, the Office of National Statistics, which said that Birmingham people were four times more vulnerable. I mean, there's, there's been some more sort of medical research and reports recently, I think, in the news pages of the Times today, suggesting the numbers might not be so... Um, well, extreme as that. But the issue is, is this a genetic health issue or is this a socioeconomic issue with the vulnerability of um, many BAMI people in terms of the roles that they do, the jobs they do in society, the amazing work they do in the NHS, you know, as, as nurses and doctors, are they more in the line of fire than, than other people. So I think it's a clearly it needs more research. And but Troy Deeney's concerns are, are completely justified. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Okay, let's talk about Craig Bellamy. The former Premier League star is now coaching in Belgium and has been speaking to Henry about dealing with anxiety and anger during his career and why he's not ready to take a top job yet. As Bellamy says himself, me and management, I'd need to be able to manage myself first. Uh, Henry, it is such an honest and, and open interview with Bellamy. And it finally seems he's happy with his role in Belgium under Vincent Company at Anderlecht after what has been a troubled history for him. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's partly, as he, you know, as he was saying, that he can walk down the street and, well, pre-lockdown and uh, and sort of not get 
um, you know, the, the, all the issues that uh, that sort of well-known players have, which he would have in Wales, he would have in the, you know in in England. Um, and just little things like he's playing for a vets team and he's absolutely loving that. And the, you know he he has because the players when he played he said if he played in Cardiff in a vets game in Cardiff there would be someone out there who wants to make a name for himself by oh I was the person who uh, you know kicked Craig Bellamy in a game or wild Craig Bellamy he said he just doesn't get that there they're just loving having him playing there he's enjoying playing all over the pitch there was one game they were playing against a um, a team who had a very good centre forward. And uh, Craig Bellamy just said to the centre-half, right, I'm going to take him. They were 2-0 down at the time, and, and they won 6-2. And Craig said, listen, I didn't score, I didn't make an assist, but I just loved having this individual uh, battle with, a, with, with another player. So, he's, look, he's loving life over there. Vincent Company is absolutely huge for him in terms of, I mean, you know Company. He's, he's so intelligent. He can read people, and he can soothe Craig when he looks like he's heading towards a dark area. So, uh, no, it's, you know... Good, good luck to him because there's, you know what Craig's like. He's a, uh, you know, he he can seek confrontation on the pitch. Occasionally gets into trouble off the pitch. But he's one of the most thoughtful individuals on football I've ever met. You know, on and off the record. I was going to ask you about that. When when someone comes across as such a steely, strong character, did this openness surprise you? The fact that he that he does have some vulnerability to him. Well, it was interesting because we started off by talking about the Michael Jordan. Uh, amazing documentary um, and about is there an element of greatness in, in is there you know is there a dark side is there an edge to that is there an obsessive uh, disorder um, OCD I mean I, I, I'm not saying that Carrick is anywhere Michael Carrick's anywhere near on that level but I spent 18 months going over to Michael Carrick's house helping him write a book and he, he has got an OCD thing and there were, there were little things like I would go into the ki- kitchen to put the kettle on and um, on the way out I would just sort of nudge the, the cushion on the sofa that I was sitting on and when I came back Michael had tidied it up if uh, he went out of the room I would sort of move some of the magazines on I'm a bit mischievous I would move some of the, the, <laughs> the magazines on the coffee table around and when he came back in he would just sort of you know align them up so they're at right angles to the edge of the table and I talked to him about that and I talked to his wife about that and I talked to Craig Bellamy about this sort of meticulous obsessive side and I guess if you're if everything in your life and Gregor would know this from his playing days um it's all about routine. It's all about repetition. It's all about having controlling as much as you can. Then I think that can lead them into like non-footballing and fairly, you know, fairly difficult areas. Uh, I think there there might be one or two issues um, going further back for, uh, for 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 Craig Bellamy. I think it, injuries. I think so that some of the darkness sort of happened after or alongside injuries, and that's entirely understandable. But I think there's also an element that Craig Bellamy. Because he he wasn't maybe technically on a sort of par with the very sort of top players, but to make sure that he delivered in games, he would absolutely stir himself up to make sure that he believed that the the opponent absolutely had it in for him. But again, that's you know the siege mentality. It's, it's Sir Alex Ferguson. It's I mean Michael Jordan. He he came out with that throughout. He would almost create fights, create quotes that an opponent, forthcoming opponent, had said about him. So look, it's it's a but you can see why the fine line between genius and madness, and I'm not saying Craig is either of those, but you can see why there is that line. I'm sure Gregor's seen it with, with many people he played with. You know, that pursuit of excellence can can lead players into fairly, you know, dark areas at times. Yeah, Gregor, it's it's a really interesting read 
um, this article that, that Henry has written and, and Bellamy really does open up about everything and he does talk about the OCD nature in him, even the superstitions that he had about he had to leave the house on time because that would that would make uh, the difference to the result that whatever club he was at, you know, what would happen in that game. Um, have you noticed that sort of OCD nature in players? And as Henry pointed out, mainly probably due to the fact that their lives have been built around routine for such such a long time. Absolutely. Um, I think I had had or have it. <laughs> Unfortunately, it didn't make me great or a genius, but um, I, absolutely, this is a, is a common trait. I, I would actually say, though, I don't think it's kind of unique to, to football or sportsmen. I think anyone who strives to be the best at anything, really, or, you know, certainly among the, the best at anything, has to have an obs- have, to have kind of obsessive compulsive behaviours. Um, I don't think that's just unique to football, but certainly it is very commonplace in football. Um, and the thing that makes it probably difficult for sportsmen and footballers is that, despite all of that, those obsessions and the kind of and the the, the compulsive behaviours about about um, preparation and and things like that, and super, you know, he spoke about superstitions too. There's so much that's out, outside your control in football, and luck and injuries, and you know a manager picking you or not, or it's another player being signed. So it can feel that when you do all of that, despite you do, having done all that stuff, it, it's it's worth nothing at, at the end of it. And I think that's where sport and football and football as well is is slightly different to 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 other kind of industries or walks of life. But I, I was I thought it was a fascinating interview and the kind of Bellamy's not someone who would have struck me that would be sort of who would have felt such levels of self doubt as well. And it's funny you see players now when they retired more and more admit to that. I remember uh, Mertesacker when he just after he retired admitting about how how much of an ordeal he he found preparing and and uh, and playing football essentially for his entire career. Jamie Carragher said the same about he ba- he basically played football. Um, and fear was the thing that catapulted him. It wasn't really enjoyment. And and Bellamy said in, in his interview with Sky as well that he, you know, he's proud of his career, and and but he didn't enjoy it. And that's you know everyone looks back and says that's very sad. I think that's actually very common. I think that you put yourself under so much pressure, uh, and put so much of yourself into into um, into the job and into the the profession um, that. It really, I don't know. It can be, it can be absolutely exhausting, and and especially when you end, when it ends, it's that's why players have such difficulties. And I guess then, Gregor, it doesn't surprise you when you hear a PFA study recently found more than fifty footballers are suffering from depression and have considered self harm. And those fifty footballers are the ones that are owning up to it. There may be other footballers who who aren't still prepared to even talk about it, even if it is in a, a private study. Yeah, I mean that that was that was quite worrying, really. Um, I think it would take a lot for anyone to admit that, even in a questionnaire. Um, yeah. So no, absolutely. I think you know this is this is almost you know it's an existential threat to the game in the lower leagues, and I think some of these people will be you know they're all on top of the financial worries and uh, and the kind of sense of loss of having you know it's your identity as well, being a footballer and and going in every day, and that's that's what you've done for so many years, and it's it's just all on hold now, and actually. There's serious threats of 
and, and dangers to you know if and when it's going to come back at, at lower levels. So um, that was quite worrying to hear that. But um, I, I, I found this interview fascinating. I think mm. you, to see the kind of... I actually think it would help if more players were honest about this too and were honest about self-doubts and because that's the thing that Bellamy also was saying that you don't, you know, you would never admit that or show that to any other, to any any player, any other, any other teammate or any opponent, or anyone. So it's perceived as a weakness. But the more and more people talk about these things, then I think the less and less that, that, that it is perceived as a weakness. It's just part of being a footballer. But of course, that is the issue he's mentioned there. It will be a sign of weakness if you come out and say, "I do feel vulnerable, uh, Henry," and and that's the issue I suppose footballers have right now. That maybe, maybe the environments that they're in doesn't help them if they are feeling at risk or vulnerable? I'm not sure that's necessarily the case now. I think we've seen um, managers and and players, I mean, managers almost encouraging it. Obviously, there's a lot of focus on it this week because it's um, Mental Health Awareness Week. But I, I do think we've had more and more players coming out and talking. Danny Rose, I remember on the eve of the yes. World Cup, going to Russia, Danny Rose spoke amazingly eloquently and movingly and then there were all sorts of sort of phone-ins and I think it is obviously people have got sort of platforms and people, you know, the younger generation um, you know, put put everything out there on media I, I see some of the younger journalists sort of talking about their, their, their mental health issues, whereas the sort of generation I came through um, just, just wouldn't even dreamed of it and I think so, I, th- I think it's good I, th- I mean, coming back to when I spent time with Michael Carrick and he was talking about uh, depression after the, the uh, 2009 Champions League final. Um, and I said, do you really mean the word depression? Or are you saying you were just a bit down and depressed? And, he's, and actually, he, he, you know, he's a very grounded individual. But yeah, they were, you know, he, he was happy to, to speak about it. Many people are speaking about it now. So I think the more that speak out about it, you know, we've had sort of Aaron Lennon also... We've, we've seen what happens if people do bottle it up and they don't speak out about it until it's too late. And then that is just, yeah. that would scare the industry, would scare society. So I think it's brilliant that players are, are talking out about it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah, absolutely. It's a super read and obviously you can check it out at the uh, Times website. Now, finally, we're going to head back to 1996, one of England's finest performances at a major tournament as they beat the Netherlands 4-1 at Wembley to seal their place in the knockout stages of Euro 96. Man of the match that day was Teddy Sheringham, who's been reliving the day with Alison Rudd for the Times this week. Um, Henry, you were actually at the game as well. So what are your memories of that wonderful day, shall we say? Well, it was a, a typical Euro 96 Wembley day. I mean, just amazing atmosphere, football's coming home, the, the sort of the glorious weather. I mean, everyone forgets. It was just the weather was sensational. And you notice it with, with England that, you know, they would leave um, Burnham Beaches, their hotel, and just before the first game, there were probably about 100 people outside. There were thousands by, uh, by, by, by then. And it was rather amusing listening to sort of Teddy and some of the other players who were saying, well, actually, it was because we wanted to prove... Uh, th- th- things to the press and some of the press coverage, you know, particularly on the back of what happened in Hong Kong, was actually was was clearly over the top. But I have to point out that one or two things that went on out in uh, Hong Kong, we didn't write about. There was an agreement. We went out one night to uh, one club. We'd arranged it with the players. Listen, we're going to this bar. We know you're going to that bar. Have a brilliant time and see see you back at Bisham Abbey. 
And actually, one of the players turned up at our bar, slightly surprisingly, <laughs> slightly the worse for wear. And I thought, well, we can't have him being seen. Obviously, this was the, the, you know, the time before fans and camera phones. But, you know, there would be photographers around. So I went up to the bar and got him a T-shirt because his shirt was ripped. And I said, listen, mate, put this on just in case there are any sort of photographers on your way back to the hotel. And he slurred his thank you. And so, you know, I, I have sort of read all this. Oh, we wanted to, to prove the press wrong with a slight sort of raised elbow. Because, look, that was a really good good team a really nice really enjoyable bunch of players to to talk to you know McManaman and Shearer are sharing him and you know and but coming back to that game I mean people forget what a good Dutch side that was they were the pre-tournament favourites I think along with England I mean you know they're Burkham they're Van der Sar, Seydorf, Ronald de Boer, Patrick Kluivert came off the bench um, but it was probably one of the, the best uh, England team performances I've ever seen, and particularly that third goal. And I mean, it was—I won't embarrass the, the journalist, but when that build-up went through, I mean, from Adams stepped into midfield, and then Gascoigne, then Anderton, then Gascoigne again, then McManaman's yes. return ball to Gascoigne, and then Gascoigne. But I think it was right to go challenge him. He could have gone down. He could have actually attacked and gone himself, but he, he immediately looked for for Terry for Teddy Sheringham. Um, and then Teddy Sheringham, he looked like he was going to shoot, yeah. but then he opened up oh. his body and he played the ball beautifully over to Shearer, 3-0, Van der Sar, no chance, all over. But actually, one of the journalists, I remember saying, uh, actually wrote, very distinguished writer, wrote, and I remember calling out about it, which I would never do to a, to a colleague, but he actually said a miscue from Teddy Sheringham. But you could oh. see exactly what Teddy was doing. He knew where Shearer was, and it was, it was just brilliant piece of skill by Teddy Sheringham who was fantastic that day but don't forget I mean there were good performances all over the pitch Shearer obviously but Gascoigne was sensational as well oh I have to say you painted that that goal that picture of that goal amazingly Henry's I've got a big smile on my face just listening to how you were painting it um before we sort of focus a little bit more on that and I'm sure Gregor is enjoying this conversation right now um <laughs> did, did you get swept up in the euphoria then because you mentioned how everyone was so euphoric everyone believe everyone had that belief that football was coming home did you believe it as well a little bit yeah definitely I think there was partly because they were just such a good bunch of individuals plus also you forget how many club captains there were in that side I mean Terry Venables look so many, look Venables press conferences were split between those who either had sort of legal or whatever issues with him and those who who just you know would go out to his nightclub and have a sing-song and um I, I got on brilliantly with Venables. I just thought he was a fantastic coach. He was brilliant company, whether you're having lunch with him, a drink with him, or you listen to him in press conferences. And if he had that effect on me, I could see absolutely the uplifting effect that he would have on the players. And they were a really interesting bunch. I mean, look, Steve McManaman is one of the most interesting individuals you can talk to. If you're talking to Gascoigne, you get a very reflective interesting individual with his thoughts on the game if you're talking to Gaza then you're going to get sort of burps and farts and and, and what have you but actually you know really really interesting bunch Anderton Adams Sheringham obviously Southgate Gary Neville I mean Gary Neville was, was terrific in that tournament so it was great so yeah absolutely I probably did get slightly caught up in it mm. And England conceded late on to the Dutch, which put Scotland out of Euro 96 on goals scored. Did that make it a little bit sweeter for you, that win, Henry? Uh, not really, because I've got a lot of friends who are Scottish, but also I could, <laughs> I've, I've never heard. No, because you want Scotland to, to, to do. Oh, well, I absolutely want Scotland to do well. Again, because they're, you know, they're, they're, 
they're a good bunch, really, really likeable manager at the time. Um, but I have never heard England fans so cheer uh, the, the opposition's goal. I mean, because they knew exactly what it went, the hardcore of the England fans. In fact, they were tweeting about it the other night when ITV was sort of showing the game again. They were tweeting, yeah, go on, Clivert, what a great goal. But no, obviously, I'm, I, I wanted, I would have much rather Scotland went through. You see, Gregor, we're so nice. We're saying that we wanted Scotland to go through. When you and Jonathan Northcroft team up together, I'm bullied by you. No, but um, it's interesting the piece that Alison has done with, with Teddy Sheringham as well, because he says it was actually the... It was the first time he'd ever seen the game back when they when they watched it together as such in social distancing ways. Did you used to rewatch rewatch some of your performances, Gregor? Uh, I think so, probably some of that's changed a bit, and that you you were at some clubs you were given you know clips of a game or DVDs to watch afterwards, and it was kind of you were expected to almost. Um, so I think that's probably changed a bit over the years. I'd have to be brutally honest, uh, not all my games were live on television. So, um, <laughs> yes. but, but no, I did, I did quite like to watch, watch games back, uh, provided I played well. Uh, so you wouldn't watch bad performances? <laughs> no. Probably. Surely you have to, to learn from them, though. <laughs> no? No. Yeah. All right, then. Uh, well, Sheringham also discusses the star of Euro 96, Paul Gascoigne, who Henry has mentioned in the piece. Um, Euro 96 being shown again on TV. It's brought home to me how special Gaza was. The best I've ever played with, Teddy says. Now, Henry, I don't know if you heard this, this abomination from Alison Rudd on Monday's podcast. But she said that Gaza was an overrated flat track bully. Where do you stand on the Gaza debate then? Well, it's a very interesting viewpoint, <laughs> and I, I have huge respect for for, for Alison's views. Normally, um, played for England more than fifty times, fifty-seven caps, ten goals. Uh, you look at some of his club performances: free kick against Arsenal in ninety-one, uh, the goal in the Rome derby, eighty-ninth minute. You know, these are high-pressure club games where Gascoigne delivered at absolutely key moments. You then look at him internationally, you know, the 1990, the assist for Mark Wright, really important against Egypt. Famously, the ball through to, uh, to Platt for the goal against Belgium. The goal, that fantastic goal against Scotland, the performance against Holland. If anything, <laughs> Gascoigne, one thing you can say about his career, he really raised himself for the big games. You know, there was so much adrenaline pumping through him. But also then those incredible moments of calm, as in the goal against uh, Scotland, juggling the ball over Hendry. And just to do that at such a pressure moment with the eyes of obviously the whole country, the Battle of Britain, the whole way that that had been built up, all the focus on Gascoigne. He wasn't a flat track bully. Actually, the harder the going, the more Gascoigne delivered. Yeah, he was very instrumental. I agree with that. So this 4-1 victory over the Netherlands, uh, does that stand out as perhaps the best three Lions performance at a major tournament in your lifetime, Henry? Uh, well, I was born three years before 66, so I'll have to sort of, <laughs> I'll have to sort of bow whatever I was doing, throwing rusks from my, uh, from my cot at the, um, well, probably out of the cot. Well, um, yeah, so obviously it's at 66. Um, oh, it's got to be up there. But look, some of those performances by England... Um, at 1990 were, were fabulous. I mean, you know, they didn't necessarily play so well against Cameroon, but, you know, there were just amazing moments in it. Look, I think it was, you know, there, there were a few question marks about around England going into that Dutch game. Some of those, you know, even if you look back at the ITV coverage at the time, I think they had John Barnes and Jack Charlton in the studio. And I think Jack Charlton, before the game, sort of, we thought it might be a draw. John Barnes went 2-1 England. Um, 
And yet they swept, you know, a magical Dutch team away. And they didn't do it in a let's launch the ball down the channels. I mean, some of that passing, but, you know, coming back to that third goal, that Gascoigne pass into McManaman and then his movement down the inside left channel to take the ball back. McManaman plays it first time to, to Gascoigne. I mean, it was just a wonderful. I, I would say that's one of the best team goals I've, I've ever seen by England, by anyone. Mm. Is there a game that you would say, though, is your favourite? England? Yeah. I mean, the 5-1 in Munich was yes. particularly special, but unfortunately I was working for a daily at the time and I was just sitting there spitting tacks. So I wasn't able to write live. Um, do, 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 I would, Well, I mean, some of the games, I mean, the, the run to the semi-final, um, the Columbia game, possibly. Mm-hmm. You know, to see England, I mean, I sat through, what, six of the eight... Uh, penalty defeats, shootout defeats, and you could almost write it the moment the uh, the referee pointed towards the shootout. Um, but actually, then to see England win a shootout, you know, I was almost <laughs> having to be brought around with smelling salts. So yeah, I think probably the <laughs> Columbia game was good. I mean, I'd love to ask Greg all the same question, but apparently the sample size is too small. Um, but no, in, in 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 all honesty, you're getting your own back now, aren't you? I am. I am. I'm loving it. But what about the best Scotland performance for you? What what have you seen that you think that one that one stands out? Well, as you say, there's not a, uh, a great lot to choose from. My first, the first memory I have of watching Scotland was in Italia '90. So what would I have been six? Um, and I do still remember this. I remember we'd, we'd, we'd lost to Costa Rica, beaten, which I'll gloss over very quickly. Uh, we'd beat, beaten Sweden, and then we needed a draw against uh, Brazil. And we held out so well for so long, uh, and then conceded in the 81st minute. Uh, I think Jim Leighton fumbled, fumbled a shot, and it, the ball kind of bounced agonisingly inside the six-yard box. And before it was put away and then Mo Johnson had a glorious chance um, six yards out right at the death and Tafarel saved it and won save the tournament with that save so that was kind of in a nutshell you know six years old that was that is uh, I was learning early what it was like to be Scot- Scottish <laughs> and kind of glorious failures so that, that's probably my my uh, standout memory from be- actually being at a game I was at the, the game uh, at Hamden, Scotland beat uh, Holland 1-0 in the playoffs for the Euros in 2003. James McFadden scored. Um, and that was a great, great game. First leg of the playoffs. Great atmosphere, hope. And then we lost 6-0 in the return leg. So again, that's, that's being Scotland's supporter for you. <laughs> so, there you go. Well, let's hope the good times return under Steve Clark then, shall we? Uh, Yes, indeed. That is it for now. Many thanks to Gregor and to you, Henry, as well. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We're going to be back with you on Monday for the very latest game podcast. In the meantime, do stay safe. (laughs) 